everyone, I am back. I am so sorry. I've been MIA for, I don't even know, honestly, how long it's been out. I don't even know when the last episode was. I've been doing research for this episode for on and off for weeks now. Um, I've just been getting sick a lot lately and both just haven't had the energy to research and also just haven't had the voice to record um, so I do apologize about that. Um, I have some good news. Uh, I interviewed for an article for Real Woman magazine a couple of months back and it was finally published last month. Um, I'm going to leave a link in the bio so you can read it. There is, uh, it's freely available to read online. Um, or you can subscribe to the magazine. It's also a free subscription and they will send it to your door I believe it is issued uh quarterly so you'll get it every season it was my very first public interview where I have used my full name and my picture so I was a little bit nervous for sure but the article was so well written and so well researched and while I was being interviewed the journalist was so empathetic and understanding and non-judgmental that I was just instantly comfortable could have talked to her for hours. So I'm super excited about it and I hope you take time to read it. I welcome any feedback. I would love to hear from you. As always, my social media handles are either at IPVME or at Mangogs for my personal page. I also turned 36 a few weeks back. I cannot believe, cannot believe I'm a 36 year old woman. It blows my mind to be honest. Um, I'm not one of those people who really stresses about getting older to me it is a privilege that a lot of people don't get to have so I embrace it I always think about the fact that like my dad was 37 when he passed away which now that I'm 36 I really understand how young that is so I've always just embraced it it also marked six years since I left my abuser I left him exactly a week before my 30th birthday and when I see how far I've come between then and now I just wish I could go back in time and tell myself it's all gonna be okay but that's not how it works and all of the anxiety and the stress and the PTSD I went through is the reason why I'm so strong and fully functioning today no matter where you are in your path through an abusive relationship, whether you're still in it or you're recovering, there will be better days. If I can get through it, then you can too. I had nothing and I mean nothing when I left and it was scary and it was overwhelming, but I got there. My little sister is going to be visiting me in a couple of weeks. She's not sure if it's going to be for a few weeks or a few months at this point. Um, but I'm hoping to get her in on an episode while she's here. We're both really big podcast fans and have thought about doing our own podcast together for a while. So this might be a good time to see if maybe that would be something that would work. Um, I also think it'd be great to get the perspective of an abusive relationship from the view of somebody on the outside. So um, I'll keep you posted on that. So anyway, for today's episode, I'm delving into arguably one of the most infamous cases of domestic violence. That is the case of Nicole Brown Simpson. I 
refused to refer to it as the OJ case. Uh, it was the OJ trial, yes, but Nicole was the victim here. And I think that that gets forgotten about far too much when people speak about this case. She suffered from domestic violence at the hands of OJ for over 16 years. 16 years of the worst brutality a woman could suffer. And let's also not forget the other victim in this case, Ron Goldman, who also was murdered. I too consider him to be a victim of domestic violence. I did this research mostly on the documentary, uh, OG and Nicole, An American Tragedy, because this focuses more on Nicole's side of the story and uh, it shows a lot of her diary entries um, and her sister speaks throughout. And I feel that Nicole deserves that on a podcast that is dedicated to domestic abuse. I wanted to get as much accounts of her abuse as possible and as little of the actual OJ side as I could because we all know that side. But honestly, it was really hard to delve through all of the sensationalism. Obviously, the trial has to be mentioned, but I hope I managed to account for the abuse she suffered as much as I could. So I'm going to start with a diary entry in Nicole's own words, uh, she kept diaries documenting the abuse, something that I also did, something that I highly recommend to anybody that is going through it. Dear OJ, I want to put our family together. I want our kids to grow up with their parents. I want us to be the way we used to be. There was no couple like us. This speaks volumes to me as a survivor. I too felt like there were no couples like us. It was perfect in the beginning. You know, I've spoken about the whole Prince Charming effect many times before a huge pattern in the beginning of an abusive relationship. So she continues, I've been looking at our wedding tape and our family movies and I can see that we truly loved each other. I just never want to leave your side again. OJ, you'll always be my one and only true love and I'm sorry we let it die. Nicole's sister Tanya says that Nicole and Ron's names have become lost in the Hollywood circus instead of being the two victims that they are. I agree with this completely and this is why I want to focus on Nicole's story and not OJ's. She continues to say how Nicole was always a beach girl as all of them were. She was born in 1959, the second eldest of a family of girls. She speaks fondly of Nicole as a big sister. They fought like any siblings, but at the end of the day, were great friends. She was eight and Nicole 18 when Nicole moved to LA to pursue photography. This was in June 1977. She got a waitressing job to begin with to keep her afloat. This is where she met OJ. OJ grew up in the projects in San Francisco. He wanted to be a famous rich running back. It wasn't long till he was drafted to the NFL. He was the first African-American athlete to receive major sponsorship from large American corporations. There was warmth and likability about him, according to one reporter. Nicole didn't even know he was a football player. He approached her and it was an instant connection between both of them. OJ was still married to his first wife and he divorced her for Nicole. Co-workers say she was a wonderful hostess and people liked her. In February 1985, they were together for seven or eight years before they got married. Her sister says she was a beautiful bride and she was so happy for her. Her wedding video shows how happy and excited Nicole was to marry OJ. Everyone was very happy for them and said the wedding was great and a special day. October 1985, she gives birth to Sydney. She was glowing. 
She'd always wanted to be a mother. In 1988, she had Justin. She was a hands-on mom, giving them great birthdays, which she always made extra special. Her friend said motherhood was her calling and it completed her. In everyone's eyes, she had a great relationship with OJ. No one had any idea. June 12th, 1994, police are called to Nicole's house. They find Nicole in a black dress, laying in the fetal position in a puddle of blood. She had been stabbed seven times in the neck and scalp and had a gash across her throat, which had severed both her left and right carotid arteries and breached her right and left jugular arteries. The neck wound was so severe it nearly decapitated her. She also had defensive wounds on her hands. Ron Goldman was found lying nearby. The coroner said he believed Ron may have been surprised by his assailant, then cornered in a small cage-like area filled with plants and trees while he was being attacked. The coroner said the attacks would only have lasted minutes and whoever yielded the knife did it with furious intent. Now, I know that this trial is obviously probably the biggest trial there's ever been. If you haven't seen them already if you are one of those people who likes to have a visual i know some people like that i try not to judge these crime scene photos photos of the bodies are available online they are extremely extremely graphic even the scene itself without the bodies there is extremely graphic there's so much blood um so you know enter at your own risk but they are there if you are one of those people who would want to see that june 13th 1994 her sister heard screams like she was having a nightmare her sister nicole was dead they said no we just saw her last night their mom was sitting in the kitchen completely vacant her dad had his head on his forearm hitting the bathroom sink he said yes it's true They turned on the news and it was on every channel. Nicole's sister and her mom held hands watching while her mother said, that's my kid, over and over again. A few months before her death, Nicole had told her mother, I'm scared. I go to the gas station, he's there. I go to the Payless shoe store and he's there. I'm driving and he's behind me. Detectives say at the time they're not ruling anyone out, including OJ. They also say it was a gruesome scene riddled with passion and heat. There was a pool of blood under Nicole pouring down towards the sidewalk. Bloody footsteps going up the steps toward the house and footsteps leaving along with extra blood indicating the murderer may have been injured on his left side. A glove and a knit cap were found under a plant. They went inside to see if there were other victims. There was a bath drawn and candles lit and melted ice cream. No evidence of violence was in the house. Upstairs, they found Nicole's kids asleep. No other evidence was in the house. Detectives took them out the back and away from the house. Sydney, Nicole's daughter, said it was a school night and she wanted to know when her mommy was going to pick her up. The detective telling this story looks broken-hearted as he remembers this. Nicole's family went to the house. There was a voicemail from the police station to Nicole's house. It was Sydney telling her mom to wake up and come and get them at the police station. Nicole's sister is very emotional recalling this memory. A detective notified OJ. He was aware he lived only a few minutes away. Nobody was answering there at the house when they went, but they saw that there were lights on inside. They found this troubling as it was 4.30am and they saw his infamous Bronco, which didn't appear to be parked parallel to the curb. 
There was a small spot of blood above the handle on the driver's side of the vehicle. They were concerned for OJ. They needed to get inside. OJ's friend Cato was living there in the guest house at the time. Detectives referred to him as an unusual character. He said he had heard a commotion on the property earlier that night, like a pounding or a crashing. Detectives said he saw a dark object when he went to investigate. It was a glove that matched the glove found in Nicole's house. There was blood spot on the driveway and three or four more near the rear end of the Bronco and the first one he discovered. Then OJ became a very strong sub- suspect. OJ had gotten on a red eye the night before and gone to Chicago. They called the hotel. He returned right away and was brought in for an interview with detectives. He said he last saw her at a dance recital on June 12th, the day of the murder. Nicole's family all went to a restaurant after the recital, but OJ wasn't invited. Nicole was making plans with the kids. It was the first time OJ was not welcome at a family event and he didn't like that. Later that night, Nicole's mother called her to say that she'd left her glasses at the restaurant. Nicole called the restaurant and checked and they were there. Her friend Ron was working at this particular restaurant. She said he would drop them off at her house for her. That's how he got involved and was at her house. Ron's dad made a statement after the murder of his son saying he was a special human being and he didn't deserve what happened. He said he loved him and he'll miss him. It is an extremely emotional statement if you watch it. The rest of the family are there and they just look so distraught. His dad breaks down and it's just horrifying to see what this has done to them. He refuses to comment when asked about OJ. During OJ's interview, the police notice a cut on his middle finger of his left hand. OJ doesn't recall how he got it, but he says he did it in Chicago with a broken glass. He sounds very vague. Detectives note how it matches with the drops of blood found along the footsteps at the house. They tell him they have a problem and proceed to tell him about the blood they found on his car and at the house. He says he will take blood tests. They ask if he had that cut when he was leaving for Chicago. He's still vague. He says it happened somewhere between him rushing from the recital to the airport. Nicole's sister Tanya says the day of the funeral she remembers media everywhere. Onlookers, thousands of people. There was an open casket. They had to put a collar on her to cover her neck from her injuries. Her sister says her body was so hard and cold it was awful. She was a good soul. OJ started crying over the casket and a friend walked out. He couldn't take it. OJ leaned over her and kissed her. Nicole's sister said she hugged him and said, we're going to get through this. She looks incredulous now when she thinks about the fact that she consoled him. Reporters say OJ seems to be the main suspect in the investigation, though no charges have been put forward. They had lots of evidence against, against him, enough that they thought no one else could be responsible. June 17th, 1994, official announcement from the LAPD. Detectives sought and obtained a warrant to arrest OJ with the murders of Nicole and Ron. OJ has not appeared. They are actively looking for him. There is an audible gasp from the reporters. They say they need to find him as quickly as possible. They reach out to his lawyers to see if they know where he is. Defence attorney Robert Shapiro does a public appeal to OJ to turn himself in. Police are looking for his 1994 white Ford Bronco. A helicopter finds him on the freeway and follow him along with nine police vehicles. OJ is armed in the back seat. Al Cowlings is driving the Bronco, a friend of OJ's. He calls 911. He says OJ has a gun to his own head. That police need to back off. He's demanding Al to drive him to his estate in Brentwood or he will kill himself. 
He says OJ just wants to see his mother and to let him get to the house. Tanya says OJ called her dad. Her dad said, OJ, don't do this. You have two kids. Don't do this to them. They need and love you. Don't do this. People were pulling over and waving and cheering at the Bronco. His friends and family were all watching. It was shocking to them the amount of support he had from people. One reporter said he had to keep reminding himself that this was real. There were two murder victims. This wasn't a drama or a play. He pulled into his residence two hours later. There was a standoff between the Bronco and the police. It took a long time to talk him down. It started to get dark. He stayed inside the vehicle until nine o'clock when he was arrested. Tanya said her parents were beyond devastated, but their focus and attention was on the children. They had guardianship at the time. Nicole's other two sisters said they have some normalcy and keep them busy. Everything they did was for the kids. January 1995, the trial begins. Tanya discovers how her sister was really living. She had had no idea up until that point. January 1st, 1989, we hear a 911 call. There is a woman screaming, oh my God, along with more screams. It sounds distant. The patrol officer who gets the call says it was for a domestic violence battery call. He hears screaming in the background. It sounded like someone was being hit. He got there as fast as he could. Nicole came running out yelling, he's going to kill me. He said, who? And she said, OJ. She said the cops have been up there eight times before and they never do anything about it. Again, I've spoken about my thoughts on this before. I don't think the police are equipped and trained to handle domestic violence disputes. They, again, don't know the history. They see it as one event happening in front of him in front of them they don't know the escalation she collapses onto him she was wet and shivering and cold she looked beat up she had a cut one inch on her left upper lip swollen right forehead right eye starting to blacken she had a mark like a boot looking like she had been kicked in the head he looks over his shoulder and sees oj he starts yelling and screaming saying he wants her out of here. I got two women. I don't need you around here. Cops say he's under arrest and has come to the station. Nicole says she would sign a crime report against him. Ron Ship, a friend of the Simpsons, says he never saw anything until 1989. Nicole knew that Ron had taught domestic violence at the police department for two years and that's why she spoke to him about it. He knew she had makeup on her face covering something. She said OJ hit her and it wasn't the first time. He was shocked. She showed him all the pictures where she had been battered. His heart dropped. He went to court and was found guilty of domestic violence. He apologised and gave her gifts and won her back. Tony had no idea of any of this until the trial for her murder. She couldn't wrap her brain around it. She couldn't understand how he could do it to her. Nicole's diary entry. 1978, the first time he beat me up. Started on the street corner on 5th Avenue, New York at about 9. Threw me on the floor, hit me, kicked me. Went to a hotel where he continued to beat me for hours as I kept crawling for the door. They estimate from Nicole's diaries there were 60 documented beatings that she kept notes of. They were allowed into evidence by the judge at O'Day's trial. 1986. He beat me up so bad at home, tore my blue sweater and blue slacks completely off me. Went to the hospital, claimed it was a bicycle accident. He locked her in a wine closet after beating her and watched TV while she begged him to let her out. 
In a different hotel room, OJ threw me against the walls and on the floor, put bruises on my arm and back. The window scarred me, scared me, excuse me, thought he'd throw me out. We need to hear how he threw a fit, chased me, grabbed me, threw me into walls, threw all my clothes out of the window into the street three floors below, bruised me. Nicole's friend said there were times she'd go to Nicole's house and she wouldn't come out of her room. OJ would say she was having cramps and make an excuse as to why she couldn't go and say hi. Now she knows it was because Nicole was so black and blue that she couldn't cover it. January 1988. OJ was drunk. He never let up. Get out of my fucking house, you fat ass liar. So I packed a few things together. He locked the door again. I said, do I really have to go tonight? Sydney is sleeping and it's late. Let me tell you how serious I am. I have a gun in my hand right now. Get the fuck out of here. Tanya was angry at Nicole because she said she felt she had so many opportunities to tell her what was going on. Again, something I've spoken about before, you know, something that friends and family struggle to understand why the person in their lives doesn't open up to them, doesn't leave, doesn't tell them what's happening. And, you know, there are so many reasons as to why, you know, we're too scared to do it. We don't know if we'll be believed so many reasons and as I've said I've talked about them in previous episodes but I can't judge Tanya for having these thoughts I appreciate her honesty um you know not everybody is educated about domestic violence and this is why I do what I do December 31st 1991 New Year's Eve went to Spago's in Beverly Hills Nicole told her to come to the bathroom with her she said she's asking OJ for a divorce tonight, but not to tell her parents. She says, for five years, I've been doing the dance, trying to make it work. She left him. He didn't like it. He said she's not taking his kids and she's not going anywhere. It was not an amicable divorce. May 1992, Nicole finally felt a sense of freedom. She could be her own person. She had a great time, went out, lived her life. She had a great time the last two years of her life, but when she was dating OJ, it was always lurking and he was intimidating to anyone seeing her. Another diary entry at the time. Dear OJ, I want to put our family together. I want our kids to grow up with their parents. I want us to be together again. We can move wherever you want. I just never want to leave your side again. She just wanted to have a family unit. Their mutual friend Ron Ship asked Nicole if she was sure and he believed OJ when he said he would never touch her again. October 25th, 1993, a 911 call. Can you get someone over here now? He's back, please. He's OJ Simpson. I think you know his record. Could you just send somebody over here, please? Nicole goes from sounding assertive to filled with emotion and scared. The operator says to stay on the line. Nicole says, I don't want to stay on the line. He's going to beat the shit out of me. She starts shouting OJ, tells him the kids are sleeping. He yells back, you didn't give a fuck about the kids when you were sucking his dick in the living room. They were here. You didn't care about the kids then. The operator asks if he's upset about something she did. She says, a long time ago, it always comes back. She's very emotional here and OJ continues to yell in the background. The operator asks if her roommate is talking to OJ. Nicole says, no, who can talk? Listen to him. Tanya says every now and again she listens to that 911 tape because it's the only voice she has of her sister, her in fear. 
but at least she can hear her voice. I found this kind of odd, but again, I can't judge her. I guess everybody goes through emotions differently and grief differently. Sometimes, you know, maybe she needs to hear that to fully process that this is what her sister was going through. Her friend says OJ was very jealous of her seeing other men while they were broken up. It didn't matter that he another he had another girlfriend the whole time. One of the jury at OJ's trial said just because someone commits domestic abuse doesn't mean they will commit murder. It went right over her head and she was one of the lead jurors. She said the prosecution so far is spinning wheels. Again, it's just people not understanding enough about domestic violence. I do think we've come a long way since Nicole Brown Simpson and I think this is one of the cases that really opened up so many questions and answers about domestic violence Um, but you know it always stings when you hear another woman say things like that I think. Sunday May 22nd 1994 Nicole's diary entry one month before her murder we've officially split I told him we're going back to every other weekend. On Mother's Day Nicole calls her friend and says he's gone I'm not going back he couldn't let Nicole be free. June 3rd, nine days before she was murdered, another diary entry. You hung up on me last night, you're going to pay for this bitch. You think you can do any fucking thing you want, you've got it coming. In a letter found after Nicole's death, she said OJ gave her disgusted looks with each pound she gained in her first pregnancy and beat the holy hell out of her a year later. Again, after this, they told an x-ray lab that she fell off her bike. April 1995, a reporter says the jury became desensitised to the domestic abuse and Marsha Clark said, we're going to go forward with the scientific evidence and that's going to be our case. There was a huge amount of blood around the bodies, footprints, a set of blood traps, the cut on OJ's hand, which was the most obvious evidence. The DNA matched OJ's when tested. This was the most powerful evidence. When this evidence came out, even after all the abuse evidence, this was when Tanya said to herself, oh my God, he did do this. It took her that long to accept it. Again, I can completely understand that. This isn't just some guy to her. This is her brother-in-law who she loved. And, you know, to hear something like that when you don't know anything, I can't even imagine. Barry Sheck was brought on to the defence team to try and destroy the physical evidence, but for everything he tried to do, the prosecution had a comeback. It ended up getting too technical and exhausting. June 1995, six months into the trial, things were unfolding nicely for the prosecution. Then came the gloves. The infamous gloves. A receipt showing Nicole had purchased them and most likely given them to OJ. They were designed and developed for only Bloomingdale's and were sold nowhere else. They looked very small and the defence were happy when the prosecution took the bait and had OJ try on the glove. Marcia states that she did not want this to happen. They had him put on a latex glove while trying the gloves on. The gloves had obviously shrunk due to being real leather and covered in blood. He sold it to the jury that the gloves didn't fit him. It allowed him to testify without having to take the oath. He faced the jury, still as likeable as ever, and showed them the gloves on. Watching the footage, he makes a great job of shrugging and showing how they don't fit. 
Tanya said it was a dumb move from the prosecution. She thinks the whole team was too confident that they had him. The defense tried to say that the LAPD had planted the glove, specifically Mark Furman, and that he was racist. They asked him on the stand if he has ever used the N-word. He denies this. Witnesses came forward and claimed that this wasn't true. A screenwriter took the stand. She said she wanted to question him about police procedures. She recorded him. She said he used the N-word approximately 42 times. Then they play the tapes. A CNN reporter being interviewed for the documentary gets very emotional recounting this tape. He says when every black male and female heard this, it felt like he called all of us that name. The defense said then that they can then wipe out everything Mark Furman said before that because of that obvious racism. The prosecution then felt like it because the Mark Fur- then felt like it became the Mark Furman trial and not the OJ trial. Nicole had been forgotten. The jury came to a decision after only four hours. There were thousands outside the courthouse. Tanya said she had anxiety and a sick feeling in her stomach, like being on a roller coaster, going up the hill. Am I at the top yet? Just say it. As we all know, he was found not guilty. People cheered and celebrated. Tanya's mother said, we have to go and get the kids now because he's a free man, so now he can take the kids. The kids were taken away from them on Christmas Eve. Tanya's mother collapsed to the ground. She says she never forgets it every Christmas. October 23rd, 1996, OJ's civil trial begins. He had to take the stand here, but there were no cameras allowed. One major piece of evidence not entered in the criminal trial was OJ's wearing of the Bruno Molly shoes that put him on the crime scene. There were pictures of him in the shoes brought into evidence. The verdict was that he was liable for the deaths of Nicole and Ron. He was ordered to pay 33.5 million to the two families. Nicole's sister Tanya often thinks what Nicole would look like and be doing now. She thinks she'd be living on the beach in her bikini. Her parents are still very close to the kids. Sydney, though, does not have a relationship with Tanya as she believes that she hates her dad. But she does, however, have a relationship with Justin. Tanya then reads a poem that she found amongst Nicole's things. Now another day is breaking. Sleep was sweet and so is waking. Dear Lord, I promised you last night never again to sulk or fight. Such vows are easier to keep when a child is sound asleep. Today, O Lord, for your dear sake, I'll try to keep them when awake. As the trial unfolded, calls to hotlines, shelters and police exploded. In No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder, she wrote, Nicole's murder hurled into the forefront a conversation that advocates have been having for years, that it could happen anywhere to anyone. In the years that followed, with funding from the 1994 Violence Against Women Act, Policymakers began seeking new ways to address domestic violence beyond sending battered women to shelters and giving them restraining orders that often did little to protect them. Advocates now see the need for comprehensive services to help victims start over, and more prosecutors are pursuing cases that rely on forensics, medical records and other hard evidence, rather than a victim's testimony to bring suspects to court. They try to assess the risk of homicide by weighing risk factors, including substance abuse, gun ownership, forced sex, children by other fathers, violence during pregnancy and stalking. 
Perhaps the biggest red flag of all is any instance in which an abuser tries to choke off a person's airway. Statistically, we know that once the hands are on the neck, the very next step is homicide. San Diego detective Sylvia Vela tells Snyder in the book, they don't go backwards. Efforts are also underway, often court-ordered, to try to counsel and rehabilitate batterers who were once written off as incorrigible. Anyone reading it might wonder why she stayed with Simpson for so long and reconciled for a time after their 1992 divorce. It's a common question to ask, but the wrong one, Snyder believes. Many victims work on their exit for years. We do not recognise what leaving looks like and how dangerous it is and how long it takes, Snyder said in an interview. So that is it for this week. Apologies again for the delay in the episode. I'm going to try to get into a regular posting schedule, even if it's only once a month, so you can at least know when to expect a new episode, um, even if they're not as frequently as previous. As always, my DMs are open to anyone at IPVME or at Mangogs, Instagram, Twitter. Have a good week, guys.